Frozen shoulder. It's a tricky one, folks. So on this episode of the Concast, we're going to talk about it. and sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario in Canada and welcome to episode 28 of the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, injuries, fitness. For episode 28, we're going to talk about a really, really complicated injury or condition known as frozen shoulder. Uh, This Condition affects about 2 to 5% of the population at some point in their life. It's very, very complicated. It can be very, very painful and debilitating. So what I want to discuss uh, in this podcast is some of the thoughts around what might be the causes of frozen shoulder. What are some things that will increase your risk as a potential patient? And then some of the things that maybe as a therapist... Uh, We can discuss what we could be doing, or if you're a patient, uh, some of the things that you might want to ask your therapist to do or look for your therapist to do if you're seeking out a therapist yourself. So let's start off by what is frozen shoulder. And frozen shoulder is when the shoulder essentially freezes. It stops moving for one reason or another. And as a result of that, There is a lot of stiffness that is experienced in the shoulder. There's reduction in range of motion, so your ability to move it, in particular into that stop sign position, which is your arm kind of out in external rotation. There's quite a bit of discomfort and pain that can be associated with this. And like I said earlier, this affects a small percentage of the population. You're at increased risk of developing frozen shoulder if you're over the age of 40 you're at increased risk if you're female. You're also at increased risk if you have really any type of metabolic disorder, and we'll touch on this a little bit later. Now, the two main areas that seem to be affected with frozen shoulder are the capsule, and the capsule is somewhat like a saran wrap bag that surrounds the shoulder joint. So the shoulder joint's made up of a ball and socket, and it's much more like a golf ball on a golf tee where the the socket isn't that deep it's quite shallow and the ball kind of rests on this golf tee and the socket's made a little bit deeper by something known as the labrum which is a piece of cartilage tissue that surrounds it but around the joint you have this this capsule and that is what's thought to be most often affected with frozen shoulder as well as an area known as the rotator cuff interval and that is an area at the front of the shoulder between a bone known as the coracoid process, which is a projection off of the shoulder blade, and the convergence of two tendons of your rotator cuff, the supraspinatus tendon, which is one of the most commonly injured tendons, as well as the subscapularis, and they form this rotator cuff interval, which is almost this triangular space on the front of the shoulder where the two muscles blend into the capsule. So those are the two major areas, that capsular bag surrounding the shoulder, 
and then that area of the rotator cuff interval where the two rotator cuffs, supraspinatus and subscapularis, blend into the capsule. When you look at what's going on from a general overview of frozen shoulder, there seems to be two things really. Some inflammation locally within the shoulder, which we'll talk about some of the reasons why that might be occurring. And then fibrosis or scarring within the, the joint capsule or the rotator cuff interval itself. With respect to what's truly causing these physiological or rather pathological responses, pathology being abnormal physiology, and the physiology is just the function of our body, but with respect to what's truly causing frozen shoulder, the verdict's still out. There are definitely some theories that we'll discuss but by and large, there's not really a true consensus on the true causes of frozen shoulder. So before we get into the causes, let's talk about some of the symptoms that you might be experiencing as a patient or some of the symptoms that you might see as a therapist. Frozen shoulder is really broken down into three phases. The first phase is what's considered to be the frozen phase. And this might last anywhere from two months to nine months in length. The pain during this time is quite severe and substantial, and so people will characterize this as greater than 7 out of 10. And you start to get this progressive stiffness over time that develops. And often what you will experience is as your pain starts to decrease, your stiffness might start to increase. There's also quite a bit of presence of night pain and in the shoulder itself but whenever you're experiencing night pain because night pain can be a characteristic of things that are more sinister more substantial injuries or disease this is always something that you want to get looked at by your family physician or a trained practitioner that might end up referring you to your family physician so anytime that you're experiencing night pain you want to get that looked at and this is pain that's awaking you at night or pain that's substantially worse at night. So that's just an aside. From the frozen stage, the pain will start to reduce as you get into the, the thawing stage. And the primary symptoms that are experienced during the thawing stage are stiffness at end ranges of motion. So the overall stiffness of the shoulder will start to decrease. But during end ranges, you'll experience stiffness. That's usually the primary complaint. And it's very difficult to get into those end ranges. So in the first stage, your range of motion is drastically limited for a number of reasons. The stiffness that you're developing as well as the substantial pain. In the thawing phase, you'll start to see some of your range of motion come back. But depending upon where you're at in that stage, you're going to have end range stiffness. This stage might last from anywhere up to, to a year, so 4 to 12 months. The last stage or end stage of frozen shoulder, you start to get your range of motion back. You might have some residual stiffness. The pain reduces and localizes, and it usually localizes to somewhere on the outside of the arm or shoulder. And this can last anywhere from a year to four years. And there's some research to suggest that sometimes it doesn't resolve for up to a decade. So as you can see, the symptoms and the resolution of the symptoms are quite widespread. 
When we look at the two major types of frozen shoulder or the causes of frozen shoulder, there is primary frozen shoulder, which is also known as idiopathic. Idiopathic means we don't really know what's causing it. And then secondary frozen shoulder or also known as a comorbid frozen shoulder. And what that means is there's usually something else that's gone on or going on and you're getting frozen shoulder as a secondary symptom of that. One of the primary causes of frozen shoulder is a period of immobility. If you've had another surgery, for example, or you've had a surgery for a shoulder issue, and coming out of that surgery, the shoulder's been immobile for a period of time, or let's say you've suffered another injury or event like a stroke, and your arm has been left immobile for a period of time, or you fractured your arm and it's been left immobile, that seems to be one of the number one causes of frozen shoulder. So whenever somebody's having those periods of immobility or there's an expected period of immobility, the importance of whatever movement can be performed within suggested guidelines by, let's say, an overseeing doctor or what's comfortable for the patient is really of utmost importance to try and prevent this. Outside of that, we've already talked about some of the potential risks at the top of the podcast being aged 40 years or older. If you've had a prior frozen shoulder, you're at increased risk of getting one on the other side. If you're female, as well as if you have any type of metabolic syndrome, so things like diabetes, hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, immune conditions, lupus, arthritis, these metabolic conditions increase your risk of developing frozen shoulder, as well as if you've had other contractile disorders. So one of these being Dupuytren's contracture, which is a contracture of the baby finger and fourth digit in the hand. These all increase your potential risks of frozen shoulder. Now, I also think that one of the really important things with respect to frozen shoulder is understanding comorbid frozen shoulder and whether someone has a frozen shoulder that's gone misdiagnosed or has both frozen shoulder and something else. Now, one of the biggest symptoms or findings of frozen shoulder is something known as a capsular pattern. And what that means is that when I'm taking my arm up into a stop sign position, the higher my arm goes up by my side, the less external rotation my arm has. The closer I drop my arm down to my side, the more external rotation I have. Because those are paired movements, whenever you increase one range of motion, you sacrifice the other. And so that's known as a capsular pattern. The other thing that's important is, have you had an MRI? And does that MRI show anything on it? So with respect to study findings on frozen shoulder, the verdict's still out. Some studies show that there are MRI findings. There'll be a thickening of that capsule we talked about earlier. There might be substantial presence of inflammation, whereas in other studies, there is not. Now, let's say there is an MRI finding of something like a rotator cuff tear or a bicep tear or some sort of bursitis or tendonitis. The question really becomes, is it that particular injury that the person has? Does the person have a frozen shoulder and that finding on MRI is insidious or something that we don't need to pay attention to? Or do they have both a frozen shoulder and 
a rotator cuff tear. One of the biggest things for me is what does the physical exam present like and do they have that capsular pattern? If they don't have that reduction in paired movement on passive range of motion, so if I'm taking the arm through movement and I don't see that capsular pattern, then I'm more likely to lean down the line of they probably have a rotator cuff tear, they've got general shoulder pain, and I'll treat it that way. For me, if they don't have that reduction in range of motion, they are either not in the frozen stage anymore, and I can be a little bit more aggressive with my treatment, or they never had frozen shoulder to begin with. So those are just a couple of important things to look at as a therapist when addressing a frozen shoulder. Let's say now we have a definitive frozen shoulder. So you're either the therapist treating one or you're the patient that's suffering from it. What are some thoughts around what's actually causing the pain, the stiffness, and the reduced range of motion that you're experiencing? And there are a few different theories as to why this might be happening. The first is something known as the influence of cytokines and growth factors. So cytokines are essentially signaling proteins in the body. They're really small proteins. And cytokines can often start an inflammatory cascade within the capsule of the shoulder. So they can start this increased inflammation within the shoulder capsule. As a result of this inflammation, as well as growth factors that are present in the capsule, that will increase the overdrive of a cell known as the fibroblast. And the fibroblast is responsible for the capsular matrix or the organization of the capsule. Fibroblasts, as well as myofibroblasts, might increase their activity in response to this influx of inflammatory cytokines. Now, myofibroblasts create cells that can contract. If there's an increase in the amount of myofibroblasts in the capsule, which some studies have shown, then the theory is with increased myofibroblasts that can contract, the overall capsule will tighten and stiffen as a response to that. So not only are we getting increased pain and stiffness because of the inflammation, we're getting stiffness because of the response of the capsule to the inflammation. The capsule is increasing its activity, and the cells that it's producing have the ability to contract, and as a result of that, you're getting that overall stiffness. Another theory is the influence of matrix metalloproteinases on the capsule, and these are materials that are responsible for degrading some of the tissue within the joint capsule. So when we talked about just previously this excess production of fibroblasts, these matrix metalloproteinases are responsible for breaking those down. And in certain studies, there have been evidence that those are less present in the joint capsule of those people that have suffered from frozen shoulder. So not only are we getting excess production of fibroblasts, but the materials that break down the fibroblasts in the shoulder are less available to do so, and that might be perpetuating the injury process. There are a couple of other theories as well. One is that frozen shoulder is a immune response, so an autoimmune condition or the immune system fighting the shoulder capsule specifically, and this might be causing what's known as an inflammatory synovitis or inflammation of the joint capsule because of the immune system fighting it. 
And then one of the last theories is that of uh, the nervous system and the vascular system. In patients that are suffering from frozen shoulder, there seems to be an increase in the amount of nerves in the area, so something known as neo-innervation or the formation of new nerves. And whenever there's neo-innervation, there's the opportunity to feel more discomfort and pain. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will, but there's more opportunity there. And there's also an increase in something known as VEG or vascular endothelial growth factor. And what this does is this brings in new blood supply into the area. Now, with respect to this theory, we don't know whether this is causing frozen shoulder or this is in response to a frozen shoulder. Part of me thinks this is more of the body's response to try and bring in new blood flow and, and oxygen into the area that's suffering an injury, but the verdict is still out on this theory. Now, really, when we look at all of these theories... There's something going on in the capsule from a physiology standpoint. There's some sort of change in the capsule, generally speaking. There's either inflammation there, there's thickening there, there's inflammation and thickening. And this is a disease process that has to occur. Why this is important is you get people making claims about frozen shoulder. One treatment fixes, treatment plan fixes, this is the be-all end-all for frozen shoulder. And the one thing that we have to respect with all disease processes is there's some sort of physiological thing that's going on here that no matter how many times I work on your shoulder, it might help facilitate the process. It's not going to necessarily fix that physiology overnight. And this is an important thing as a therapist to be able to explain to your patients. I never will make a one treatment fix promise ever to anybody with any type of injury because we just don't know. There have been patients that I've treated two or three times and their frozen shoulder has quote-unquote resolved itself. There have been patients that I've treated for two years without any resolution. And part of my thought process is maybe I just got that person at the exact right stage of the injury process and they were going to heal themselves out anyway. But one of the primary things with frozen shoulder is the education around this particular injury injury or disease process and that it might in fact take quite a bit of time to resolve. If you're listening to this and you have a frozen shoulder or your therapist is treating a frozen shoulder, you probably want to know what are some things that you can do to help alleviate some of the symptoms that you're feeling. Again, first thing is you're going to want to get a true and accurate diagnosis and then a plan of care following that. First and foremost should be pain management, and while I am the first to hope that complementary therapies might help manage pain, sometimes there needs to be a medical intervention in the form of medication, short-term nerve blocks or anesthetics, or injection of other medications like corticosteroids. And if pain is substantial and your therapist is treating this, there might need to be a referral back to the family doctor. If you're a patient that's suffering from this, sometimes a medical intervention might be needed to manage your pain, especially that night pain, because that's going to disrupt your sleep and that sleep's going to affect the overall process of the injury or disease. So pain management should be priority. And if you can get this through complementary therapies, then great, but you might also need some medical intervention as well. Movement is also key in pain-free positions. 
When I first began therapy, I used to be very, very aggressive with these patients, aggressive stretching and aggressive joint mobilizations. I've since stopped that. I'm really not sure what the aggressive stretching and the aggressive joint mobilizations offer the patient other than substantially increasing their pain, increasing their discomfort, and in fact, potentially lengthening out the healing process and recovery. So movement should be done in positions that offer reduction in pain or positions that are non-threatening for the patient. This can be exercises that promote just general fluidity and range of motion of the shoulder, but they can also be strength-based exercises or exercises used to maintain strength in positions that don't require an excessive range of motion. In particular, that stop sign position or the position that's really, really aggravating for them or pushing them into range of motion overhead too early in the process. This might include things like just carrying something that's heavy and going for a walk. It might include things like isometrics or holding a position against some light resistance for a period of time. Isometrics have been shown in the research to be very effective at reducing pain as well. Attempting to push range of motion too early in the process, in my experience, has only led to an increase in symptoms and a flare-up of symptoms. If the person is still in the frozen stage, respect that and encourage movement around the ranges of motion that are most aggravating. The maintenance of strength during this period of time as well cannot be underestimated, and so you always want to be incorporating that strength component. Next is the neck. Now, many of the nerves that feed the shoulder and cross over into the shoulder and innervate the joint capsule as well as the skin over the area of the shoulder are coming from the neck and the cervical spine. So the neck should be a part of the treatment plan and that it might influence some of the perceptions of pain. Now, I'm not saying that the neck is the cause of frozen shoulder, but I think because of the close connection between the neck and the shoulder, it needs to be a very important part of the treatment plan. You want to develop good range of motion in the neck. You want to develop some good strength in the neck. And the primary goal should be to be able to disconnect the neck from the shoulder or have good separation between the two. Often with a frozen shoulder or any shoulder injury, we see that patients will hike the shoulder a lot and that is usually a protective mechanism, but that movement pattern can start to be ingrained over time and become permanent. So we want to encourage good separation of the neck and the shoulder. So you might just hold a heavy weight in one hand and turn your head to the left and right and allow that neck to relax off the shoulder and over time you'll see that that'll become easier to perform and that might make your overall symptoms a little bit more comfortable throughout the course of the day. The last one I think is probably the most underutilized treatment mechanism for frozen shoulder probably because there's not a lot of evidence there but there seems to be emergent research on frozen shoulder rotator cuff injuries, rotator tendon injuries, and an increased incidence of this in people with metabolic syndromes. So like I said earlier in the podcast, things like diabetes, type 1 and type 2, autoimmune conditions. And so if you are suffering from frozen shoulder, 
You're also going to want to make sure that these metabolic syndromes are intact. Is the medication that you're taking accurate? Are you living a healthy and active lifestyle? Is your nutrition on point? Are you getting adequate sleep? Are you doing things to manage your stress? And in the event that these two things aren't necessarily correlated, then you're doing positive things for your overall health, wellness, and lifestyle anyway. But there is this underlying emergent connection between frozen shoulder and metabolic syndromes. So in my opinion, it would be really, really beneficial to seek out someone to help you with your overall nutrition, your lifestyle, stress management, exercise, if you are suffering from one of these metabolic syndromes or metabolic diseases already. Lastly, and certainly not least, and it cannot be underappreciated, is the education and encouraging patients around this particular injury or disease process. This takes time. Again, if you're getting claims of one treatment fixes, there's no evidence to support that. And that's one of the reasons why we want to encourage pain management as early as possible, good quality movement around the injury, and overall management of sleep, stress response, and lifestyle. In my experience, when all of these are aligned properly, patients at least stand a better chance. It doesn't mean that they'll always resolve more quickly, but they stand a better chance, it appears, of getting better outcomes long term. So what do you think? Are you a person that's suffered from frozen shoulder or a therapist that's treated a lot of frozen shoulders over the years? What's worked for you and helped you get out of your injury process? Is your frozen shoulder completely resolved or are you still suffering from some of the lingering side effects of it? I'd love to know in the comments. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode valuable. Have yourselves a great weekend and we'll see you in the next one.